0: It's a it's a sin cursed world, the Bible says. And the newspapers are are full of the reminders of that, aren't they? The the terrible events of the earthquake in Italy, the civil war that's ongoing in Syria, just to name two. But the Bible tells us that God has a plan of salvation. God has a plan of salvation for the world. How is the plan going? I suppose it's a relevant question. Are you encouraged or discouraged? We could get quite discouraged in the UK. Lots of church buildings. Most have empty seats. And the congregation is getting older. There's a lot of indifference to Christianity. And in fact, at times, a growing secular hostility and it could look like this plan is not really amounting to much at all in Isaiah we see that God is speaking to a group of people who are mourning over such things it seemed as if God's great big plans of salvation had come to nothing and we're just gonna take the time to see what God had to say to them and I think the very same thing has a lot to encourage us today. We're, we're diving into kind of the middle of the Bible here, aren't we, Isaiah 49? Uh, what's the story so far? Well, the story so far is this, there is a sin-cursed world because of our rebellion against God. But God promised this man, Abraham, that through him a nation would come and all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through him. Even as God focused in on one man and one people group, the Israelites, God's whole agenda was to bring blessing to all the nations, to the whole world. But read through the Old Testament book, this history of God's dealings with his ancient people, and you will see that actually Israel failed to live up to that promise. They continued to disobey God. They failed to keep his um, commandments. They failed to be the distinctive light. There was going to be a beacon of hope to the nations. And so by the time of Isaiah, the nation stood at the very edge of extinction. He, he wrote this book about 700 years before Jesus Christ came, 700 BC. Israel had already divided into two. The northern kingdom uh, was being wiped out. And on the horizon, Isaiah was telling them that uh, God was declaring that Babylon an empire would rise up and would destroy the southern kingdom of Judah and um, the city would be destroyed the temple would be destroyed and they would be exiled they would be deported and kicked out of the land and live as refugees and exiles in Babylon and so Isaiah is writing at a time to a people who are thinking well is that it is what what of God's plan of salvation what of the big promises he made to Abraham and and David has it all come to nothing is God's plan of salvation over and that's why Isaiah chapter 49 is such a significant chapter because God wants his people to know that's not the case in fact he's got News that's worthy of joyful shouting. When was the last time you joyfully shouted? Hooray! It's funny, there's a lot of shouting in the Bible about people's, God's people gathering together and shouting for joy. We just don't tend to do it. Why, why is that? I don't know. I, but, but in the Bible, there's a lot of shouting for joy. In fact, there's, there's reasons for world rejoicing. There's stuff that needs to be sung from the mountaintops. That's what we've got in Isaiah chapter 49. Look again at verse 13 on page 737. Shout for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains. Why? Well, for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. There is good news. So what is it that we need to rejoice about? What's the reason for this joy? Well, over the last couple of months, we've been working through the book of Isaiah. Uh, From Isaiah chapter 40 to 48, we've seen actually how God has promised that he was going to get his people back to the land and that they would restore Israel once again that's good news but as we've read through we've seen and actually part of the problem is that even as he's telling them this great news they've still got these sinful stubborn hearts which are the deeper problem they're still in rebellion against God but from chapters 49 to 55 of the book of Isaiah God was promising how he's going to fix the deeper problem, the heart problem. It's a stubborn heart problem that we all are afflicted by. One that actually doesn't want to hear what God has to say, that doesn't want to listen to him. But God announces here that he's going to fix this problem. How's he going to do it? Well, he's got a secret weapon, he has a special agent. Who's going to come and save the day? This is better than Mission Impossible. It's better than Jason Bourne. It's better than any superhero movie. Because God promises in this chapter that he's going to send a man known as the servant of the Lord. And look at the job description of this person. There are two kind of paradoxes here that I think are preparing us for the coming of Jesus. Remember this is written 700 years before Jesus turns up. And I think what we have here is a job description of Jesus. So we should expect a glorious servant who's going to be hidden and discouraged in the first six verses. And we should expect a despised servant who's going to be honored as savior for the whole world. So let's the two things we're going to think at today. Firstly, a glorious servant who was hidden and discouraged. See, the first six verses seem to be actually the voice of the servant himself. This uh, secret agent is addressing us. Addressing us actually in far-flung places like Scotland and the British Isles. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. He wants to grab our attention. He wants to let us know of this God-given mission. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. So Isaiah tells them that they should expect someone born of a woman who from before his birth would have a a God-given mission. Well, guess what? Christmas is coming. And if you come here in a few months, we're going to be reading some of the classic Christmas sections. And we're going to read in Matthew's gospel how an angel of the Lord comes to Joseph and tells him not to be afraid of his fiancee's pregnancy. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She's going to give birth to a son. And they should give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. This will be his name and this will be his job description. This is what he's come to do. Great news. Well, back to Isaiah 49. What else do we learn about the servant? Well, this servant would be God's secret weapon. Look at the language of verse 2. He's a sharpened sword. He's a polished arrow. I guess in a contemporary way, he's God's cruise missile that's going to fly underneath the radar and going to be getting past people's defenses. And yet actually, look at verse 2. What is the, the secret weapon? He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. So Isaiah says, you should expect someone whose impact is going to be through his teaching. It's going to be like a sharpened sword that slices through, like a polished arrow. He's going to, his words are going to impact. Well, I hope you've read one of the gospel accounts of Jesus. Because what you find as you read it is that Jesus does remarkable miracles. But what is it that the crowds talk about? They all comment on his teaching. What is this? A new teaching and with authority, they say. And they came in massive crowds to hear him, to hear sermons like the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached. And he often spoke in parables, which were sort of stories that seemed to get past people's defenses. And he gave answers that stunned those who tried to trip him up. And Jesus described himself as his main task as being a preacher. In Mark's gospel, chapter 1, 38, says this. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so that I can preach there also. That's why I've come, he says. Come back to Isaiah 49. Look at what God promises. Verse 3. This is what God says to the servant. He said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. Now, when you read uh, this part of Isaiah and you read uh, the servant songs, it's a legitimate question to ask well, who is it that's speaking? I mean, verse 3 seems to say, Well, it's Israel. You are my servant Israel. Is he speaking to the whole people of Israel? And yet, when you read these verses, it's very much about an individual, isn't it? And verse 5 tells us that the servant will gather Israel to himself. So how would that work, that Israel would gather Israel to himself? No, it's not the whole people of Israel. Some would say, well, is it Isaiah the prophet? Is he referring to himself? It does sound a bit like the words used to describe Jeremiah the prophet. Is he the representative of Israel that God calls? But it's this next bit that makes that highly unlikely. When God says these words, you are my servant Israel in whom I will display my splendor. Alec Matir, an expert in Old Testament and the book of Isaiah, who actually died on Friday, wrote in his commentary in the book of Isaiah this. This is what he says. This phrase, I will dis- you will display my spender, is never said to any prophet or individual or to Israel or to any group within Israel. Isaiah says a unique thing about a unique person. This servant will be totally unique. He's going to somehow represent Israel, but he's going to be totally unique within Israel. He's going to be the one who's going to uniquely display the beauty and the splendor of the Lord. And that's why I take... The four servant songs to all specifically relate to Jesus. He's the unique, sinless Israelite who reveals the glory and the splendor of God. In the book of Acts, the history of the early church, you find Philip running alongside a a chariot, and there's an Ethiopian, and he's bought some scrolls in Jerusalem. He's reading uh, one of the servant songs that we're going to come to later, Isaiah 53, and he's puzzled and and he asks Philip, who is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage and told him the good news about Jesus. Now these servant songs are all about Jesus. But Isaiah wants to prepare us for a big surprise. This glorious servant who's gonna display the splendor of God, there's gonna be something hidden about him And he's going to be discouraged. When the servant comes on the scene revealing God's glory and teaching God's truth, people are going to be questioning. They're going to say, well, is he really God's servant? And they're going to reject what he says. Notice the language of verse 2. He's hidden. He's concealed. And strikingly, the the language of disappointment and discouragement in verse 4. But I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing at all. And this is one of the striking things as you read the gospel accounts, isn't it? That even as Jesus is doing incredible miracles that only God can do, and even while he's teaching with such great authority so that the crowds marvel, the religious leaders took offense at him. Because he came from such an ordinary family. Such an unremarkable situation. They said, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And as he talked of forgiving sins, the teachers of the law were thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And even as the disciples who followed him and listened to him, they were so very slow, so very dim about getting the point of his identity. These verses from uh, Isaiah tell us how God's going to be at work uh, in his servants so that the people will be fed in barren places. So they're not going to hunger or thirst. And so we read of Jesus reading, uh, feeding 5,000 people on one occasion, 4,000 on another occasion. Miraculously, people in the wilderness. And after seeing Jesus do these great miracles, um, they have this conversation. In Mark 8, uh, Jesus said to them, aware uh, aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the four thousand, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Seven, they said. Do you still not understand? Do you hear that sort of discouragement, that sort of exasperation? Don't, don't you get it? Don't you see it's, that I'm the fulfillment of all that's being promised in Isaiah and other places? Don't you get it? And in the end, they all disowned him and ran away as he headed to his death upon the cross. Isn't it striking that this glorious servant has these words, I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for nothing at all. So many of the surprising events around the life of Jesus were prophesied hundreds of years before he came. All to help us to identify that this really is the one that God sent to be our saviour. He is the glorious servant who displays the splendor of God. But it was something that appeared hidden. He was discouraged in his earthly ministry. And I think that's still true today, isn't it? Even after the events of Jesus, there are still so many who don't get how brilliant and glorious Jesus is. We can get quite discouraged by people's disinterest and by those who just don't seem to get it. And so I want to say to... Uh, People today, if you're feeling discouraged today, and as all your efforts to share the good news about Jesus appears to be something that's achieved very little, notice with me that that's what the servant felt. But look at how he encourages himself. Verse 4, he's he encourages himself by the wisdom of God, yet what is due to me is in the Lord's hands. God knows what he's doing. God is working things out. And he's encouraged by the power of God. My reward is with my God. He's willing to entrust his work to what God is going to do with it. And then he recalls the words of God that promise a big impact of people being saved all over the world. And here's the heart of this amazing song in verse 6. He says, this is what God says to the servant. It is too small a thing. For you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I've kept, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Here's the point. This secret weapon of God, the servant, will be so successful in his mission that merely restoring Israel is not enough. One of the worst mistakes you can do at work is to be good at your job because what happens then? You get more responsibility. And this is exactly what happens here. It's too small a thing for you to bring uh, those that belong to me in Israel back to myself. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. And here we are in Edinburgh a long way from Babylon, a long way from Israel, singing songs with great joy about the salvation that we've experienced through trusting Jesus. Isn't that remarkable? A church full of people, made up of many nations, who believe what Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, will have the light of life. So there's the first paradox. The second one is a bit quicker. He's the despised servant who's now honored as a savior. Look at verse 7. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nations. To the servant of rulers, kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who's chosen you. How striking! This glorious Savior that God provides will for a time be despised and abhorred. Isaiah's preparing them for what is to come. There's going to be a time that the very one that God delights in is going to be treated with disgust as a mere servant of no consequence. It's striking that as you read the gospel accounts, the name of servant is one that Jesus delights to embrace. And in fact, he calls those who follow him to also view themselves as servants as well. Don't act like the big shots, the impressive people, everyone should run around and serve. No, you should be the ones who go out to serve others because in that you'll be like him. Because he says this, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This language of despised and abhorred, to me, describes the events of the cross. All the gospel accounts focus on the final week, don't they? Incredibly focus on his death. They show how the kings and rulers of Israel mocked and despised Jesus, stripped, beaten, scourged, a crown of thorns smashed on his head, nailed hand and foot to wood and raised high above the ground before the crowds to die in shame and agony. And many of the crowds mocked and jeered. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. They mocked him. They despised him. They abhorred him. But his final words on the cross were these. It is finished. Mission accomplished. Job accomplished done Jesus was that despised servant and yet Isaiah tells us that there will be a moment of great change something would happen so the time will come when kings would rise to acknowledge his superiority princes would bow down to acknowledge him as the king of kings And the Bible tells us that uh, Jesus, who ascended to God's right hand, will return again. And he will bring in this everlasting kingdom. And on the day of his return, every knee will will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is what makes this incredible, uh, dramatic change happen. Despised and abhorred and yet risen from the dead one day Kings will rise to the superiority of the king of kings. All will acknowledge him. We can be forgiven. We can be accepted by God. We can receive eternal life. We can be part of God's family because God was at work in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is the servant of the Lord who's come to deal with our greatest problem. Even in apparent failure, even in the moment of rejection in his death upon the cross, God was achieving a great salvation rescue. And that is the good news that needs to be shouted from every mountaintop. He's the one who can rescue sinners out of their slavery. If life's just going great for you and you're just doing fabulous, uh, then what I say is come back uh, in a few more years because you'll realize that that's not the case. You won't have years to hear about this good news of Jesus until you realize how afflicted you are by your sin. How much we mess up our life, mess up our relationships because of our own selfishness and sin. How we are people who are estranged from God. And my friends, when you've got years to understand that, you will come to see the work of this servant as one that causes great joy and rejoicing. It's interesting that the New Testament, in Acts chapter 13, Paul quotes this, Psalm, uh, this song of the servant and applies it to uh, his work. He leaves just proclaiming the good news to Israel and the Jewish synagogues, and he heads to take the good news to the Gentiles, And he quotes this very thing. He says, well, it's because it's too small a thing. I will make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. This is the great, glorious good news that we get to share. I don't know whether you feel discouraged as you look at God's salvation plan. But as we look back in history and see that God promised that a servant would come, it describes the nature of his ministry and his life, and Jesus comes exactly in fulfillment of that. And as we consider that now, in the language of verse 8, now is the time of favor, now is the day of salvation. Jesus is the covenant, the word of grace for all sinners who will trust him. Then, what we're seeing right around the world is captives being freed. Those in darkness and in prison of their sin being released. The language of uh, verse 13 see, they'll come from afar, some from the north, some from the west, some from the region of Aswan. We're not quite sure how to translate that word that they've translated Aswan. It could be translated a, a different way that would actually possibly be a, be a word for China. And perhaps when you're in Israel, China looked the furthest place it could ever possibly be. And yet it says there's a day coming when you're going to see people coming from the north, from the west, even from China, putting their faith and trust in Jesus. Chairman Mao tried to stamp out Christianity. He tried to end it. They estimate today that there's 100 million Christians in China. My friends... The Lord Jesus Christ is the secret weapon that is bringing salvation to the very ends of the earth. It's all on track. And the wonderful thing that we're being reminded of today in these baptisms as we see Allison and Jennifer and Bethany and Johnny and Charlie and Lewis getting baptized today is that they're saying, well, do you know what? Jesus has conquered me. I recognize that he is my Savior and my Lord, and I'm following him. I'm living for him. And they're part of a great crowd of over 2 billion people right around the world to acknowledge that this despised servant is now Savior and Lord. What about you? If you've got any questions, if this is all new to you, uh, speak to someone today. We'd be delighted to try and explain it a little bit more. We run courses to help people uh, think about the basics of the Christian faith. It, it, soon we'll be starting a course called Glad You Asked, uh, asking, answering the big questions that people have. We'll also be starting a course called Christianity Explored that kind of goes through Mark's gospel so you can understand Jesus from that. Why don't you think about doing that? My Christian friends, Jesus cried, it is finished. He is a light for the Gentiles. His salvation is reaching the very ends of the earth. We should shout for joy. We should rejoice. We should burst into song. Song for the Lord comforts his people. And he will have compassion on his afflicted ones. Isn't that great news? It is great news. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you that as we read your word, we can have great confidence as we see how you spoke it in the past and it's come to fulfillment. And that the promises that are yet unfulfilled will one day be fulfilled in the returning of your son. Help us to live in the light of that day. Lord, help us to see the brilliance and the beauty of the Lord Jesus, who displays your splendor and glory. Help us not merely to see his glory, but also to trust him so that we may see that he is our savior as well. Oh Lord, meet with each person here. Draw them to Christ, we ask, in his precious name. Amen.